What had happened in Cuba clarified to many minds the meaning of various 19th century episodes. It was the most recent chapter in an already lengthy history that included the annexation of Texas, the Mexican-American War, the filibuster actions of ambitious American mercenaries in Central America, and certain explicit intentions, like those of Henry Cabot Lodge Sr., to set the stars and stripes waving from the Rio Grande to Tierra del Fuego. After this collective change of consciousness, it was natural that the liberal admiration for United States democracy, though it never totally vanished, would cede the foreground to a fear of what the next blow of Teddy Roosevelt's big stick might precipitate in the Caribbean and Central America. Liberal circles began to agree in relation to the United States with their longtime conservative rivals. It was a sea change in the history of Latin American political ideas. A new Latin American nationalism began to take clear shape and its contours were explicitly anti-American. Ariel would become its Bible, the work of a writer who never set foot in the United States, born in a small and turbulent but educated and prosperous country that felt itself to be, like its neighbor Argentina, the Europe of Latin America, the only possible bulwark against the arrogant power far to its north. Its imperial dream now vanished forever, Spain could take comfort in the fact that Latin America, almost after a hundred years of cold relations, rushed to a reconciliation with the humiliated maternal fatherland. The two halves of the sphere of the Spanish language joined against the same adversary and the influence of its language. The extraordinary generation of 1898 shook Spanish culture awake from two centuries of intellectual somnolence. The defeat triggered an examination of consciousness that led these writers to renew the genius of the race, to rediscover their own country, to travel its roads and reflect upon the past and destiny of Spain. In practical terms, the problem seemed evident. We do not have adequate access to technology, said this generation of 98. We are left out of that competition, but we do have our spirit. And that is from the great Enrique Krautze whom we have dined with yes. in his book from 2011, Redeemers in Spanish Redentores. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford. I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am here with Josh Trevino, the foundation's chief of intelligence and research. So thank you for being here, Josh. We just filmed an episode um, last week. Last week. But we had so much left to cover that here we are filming again. Well, there's never any shortage of news from south of the border, is there? Never, especially lately. So thank you for reading that monologue. Uh, we can yeah. go ahead and jump right in. Well, Do you want to start by unpacking it? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I read it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because we've had to engage with this idea of the, uh, the Iberosfera, the Iberosphere. Right. Uh, this concept that there is sort of a, a common Atlantic-focused world that includes both Latin America and Spain and Portugal uh, on the one hand. And you have been knee-deep in it for the past yeah. week uh, because you've been in Miami yeah. for the inaugural... Carvalho, Carvalho Dialogue. Yeah. Uh, I apologize to our Brazilian and Portuguese-speaking listeners there. It's not a strong suit. There's kind of a soft L-H-O phoneme that uh, I'm incompetent to pronounce, but uh, <laughs> we'll say the Carvalho Dialogue. Uh, you were there. Yeah. It was three days, two and a half days yep. of some of the leading uh, liberty entrepreneurs, thinkers, and fighters from across not just the United States, but also Latin America and some friends from Spain. Tell us all about it. Who did you yeah. see? What did you do? And what, what started there? Yeah, it was amazing. First of all, yes, I was in Miami. I really enjoyed being there. But it was just the first of many conferences. We haven't had anything like this before. But it was, like you said, it was named after this Brazilian uh, philosopher, writer, educator. His name's Olavo de Carvalho. Mm -hmm. And he... Um, he was, I think, the first to denounce like the hegemony of left leftist thought, right? Or the Foro de Sao Paulo in particular. Yeah, yeah. Yes. He was one of the yes. first to recognize the threats of the Foro de Sao Paulo, which, for the listeners who don't know, is basically one of many big gatherings or conferences of left-wing authoritarian populist leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And so the conversation was about that, but it was a it was a conservative get together to look at it from a bit of a different perspective because we've talked about this how. A lot of the U.S., especially the conservative movement in the U.S., has really overlooked Latin America for a very long time. And there's a lot of countries and people in Latin America right now that 
are suffering under their authoritarian left-wing leaders. And so it's it's an important conversation to have. Hopefully there will be a lot more like it. Um, but there was people from all over. I mean, we had our friends from Mexico. We had people come from Spain. There was a lot of Brazilians, Colombians, a lot of Guatemalans. Interesting. And yeah, I don't want to, you know, name all the people that were there because I don't know if they would want me to. But sure. um, it was an amazing gathering. There were people that are involved in... Um, in politics back in their home countries there are people that have started organizations that are very passionately fighting for freedom in their home countries and there were even some people that had been exiled for, for, from their countries for you know things that they were writing for for speaking the truth or for criticizing the government so it was a really amazing get together i i hope that we can have a few more like it. I know we're thinking about the next one being right here at TPPF, right? Uh, which is very exciting. But I'm sad that you missed it. I think you would have loved to be there. Yeah, no, I, I definitely would have loved to be there. But uh, you know, uh, next time in Austin, right? Uh, yeah, so, next time so in Austin. Can, can you talk a little bit though about the about the context in which it took place? And by, and by the way, the the sponsors, the institutional sponsors, right. are, are are us, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and also the Heritage Foundation, right. uh, who who have done so much good work. A lot of the people there for many many years. Uh, in the sphere, but w why did why was there a decision that this conference was necessary now to bring these people together? Yeah, so this has been going on for a long time. Like like I said, I think it's been ignored, but I think it's getting worse than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. uh, Latin America right now, there's like I said, a lot of people that are suffering under these authoritarian regimes, and. A lot of us here in the U.S. know about it. A lot of us have read about it. What a lot of people don't know is how it's being orchestrated and what kind of alliance it's being orchestrated by, which even I didn't know a lot about it, and I learned a lot about it this week. But, you know, like countries like Venezuela and China and Iran and Russia, who have formed this kind of big authoritarian alliance where they're all working together to promote um, a very anti-American sentiment. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to basically take over Latin America. And they have been successful. I mean, recently, one of the things that we talked about is, you know, recently Brazil. It was one of the last ones we had left. And so that's something that they've been trying to orchestrate for a really long time. And I think the conservative movement needs to take that back because a lot of Latin America identifies with the conservative party. I mean, even where I come from, we have a very leftist socialist government, but people are still very conservative, sure. at least in a large part. And so the, the the threat about the Foro de Sao Paulo is something that a lot of people should know about. Not just that, but all of its forms. The more recent Foro de Puebla, mm -hmm. uh, where basically all these left wing, they're very organized. Josh, and I think that that's something that's been missing on our side, yeah. but where they gather and they talk about how they can get organized and share information and what tools they can take to ensure that they don't leave power. And so I think that that was very interesting to talk about and, and um, hopefully this just continues to grow and grow and we can have something similar to those forums, which I know there's the Foro Madrid. There is. Which is one thing that was born out of dissent for the photo day Sao Paulo. Yeah, yeah, it's a conservative alternative. You know, one one, one uh, interesting thing about uh, th this particular book from uh, Krauza is he, he he talks about and kind of illuminates the existence yeah. of this of this kind of pan Latin American community of it's almost like this this uh, what did Erasmus have the Republic of Letters mm -hmm. back in the day and uh, so I say back in the day like it was the 1950s 500 <laughs> years ago. Uh, and 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 so and so it exists, right? And and one of the things uh, I'm not uh, that familiar with the late um, Brazilian philosopher Carvalho. You, know, you you look him up, and uh, certainly like mainstream press doesn't like him. I guess he no. was um, perceived as like Bolsonaro's brain. Uh, but but yeah. it seems like his is one of his key insights, which which seems to me inarguably correct was the existence of this transnational kind of coordinating template and body that existed to turn these Latin American regimes uh, over yeah. to the left and then retain power effectively and definitely within them. And so Venezuela was sort of the test case. In any way uh, they can. Or in any way they can. Uh, obviously, Havana has has a big, uh, a big hand in it. Uh, you and I had conversations in Mexico City uh, in which um, yeah, there was there was a friend of ours who walked us through sort of the Venezuelan template and how yeah. it was being repeated in Mexico now. Oh, yeah. Uh, up to and including, we've talked about this a few times, so the importation of a lot of Cuban personnel uh, yeah. into into Mexico. And so it was I, done in Bolivia, too. 
Was it really? I did not know that. Uh, well, just with the yeah. president finding ways to not leave power. Oh, and that's sure. Something that's yes. replicated in a lot of South America. Right. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. It's not a. It's not a renowned uh, regional strength uh, yeah. and uh, relinquishing power, um, except actually under dictatorial Mexico, uh, where they did have the you know la dictadura perfecta, and they were able to rotate out every six years. But uh, that's gone now. Yeah. Um, uh, well, it's 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 very interesting. Well, was there any particular story that you'd heard uh, from any of the participants uh, at at the Carvalho Dialogue uh, that really struck you? Something you didn't know? Um, uh, something that uh, was just was just incredibly to you vivid and new, and uh, something you'd want to share? Um, I guess there's two things. Uh, one of them that I didn't know a lot about was the intelligence threats. How a lot of uh, there's a lot of like military formations in a lot of these countries that are really pulling all of the strings Mm -hmm. and not to go into a ton of detail on that but I learned a lot about that side and then just on the more emotional side something that really struck me was talking uh, to some of the Brazilians that were kicked out of Brazil uh, just because they were bloggers or they were they were journalists that maybe the things that they were saying and the things they were calling out the government for weren't super pretty Hmm. and so you know one of them is now you know, not even living with his family, and he's not able to take care of his family. And he talked a little bit about what that's like. Uh, and he's just Brazilian. Basically, he's Brazilian. Under, under Lula, I wasn't aware that was uh, underway. Yeah, and so just just hearing some stories of people that aren't able to go back to their own countries, or people that believed so much in what they stand for, and and believe in liberty. They believe in liberty that they have sacrificed everything. They've sacrificed their family life. And one quote. This is this is kind of cheesy, but it's Please. very it's very very true. But one quote they were saying is liberty um liberty is like oxygen and you take it for granted when you have it you never think that it's a problem but the second that it's taken away it becomes it becomes everything to try to get it back right and so it was just very inspirational meeting a lot of people that are just doing amazing work in their countries so that's fantastic. It was, it was definitely amazing to get to go. Well, in the next, we missed uh, you though. Uh, I uh, I missed you all, uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, hopefully next time I'll come. I will yeah. come to the next one because it's going to be right here in Austin on September twenty seventh. Yeah. So for those of you watching on the podcast, uh, September twenty seventh, we're going to have a U.S. Mexico policy conference here at the foundation. Yeah. There will probably be some other branding uh, attached to it, which is TBD. Yeah. So we'll we'll be announcing speakers and keynotes on that. Uh, we'll start through, working on it. Yeah, soon. fairly soon. Yeah. But um, any final thoughts on that before we go on to to, to the next um, thing? Not really. I think we can ease in. I want to task you now about something since we're on the topic of Latin America. But while I was at the conference, you were also doing a lot of work. And this is actually something that you've been working on for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you about your efforts on defunding the Smithsonian Latino Museum. I think the hearing just happened yesterday, if I'm not wrong. Yes, it did. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why it was a problem to begin with? The the Smithsonian, uh, so so it's kind of rewind back in time. I think it was in 2020. I don't recall exactly when the appropriation was made, but sometime in the recent past, there was an appropriation made to build a, uh, I think it's the National Museum of the American Latino uh, on the yeah. National Mall under the aegis of the Smithsonian. Um, uh, set aside whether the National Mall needs another museum, whether it needs to be in <laughs> D.C., uh, whatever. I, I, I do think there is a real question that needs to be raised as to um, uh, kind of this increasing desire on the part of kind of the American overclass to view the United States as sort of this balkanized patchwork. And this group's got to get their thing, and this group's got to get their thing, and this group. And, and it's especially, it, it gets especially preposterous mm-hmm. with, with uh, Hispanics, Latinos, I don't use the word Latino, but uh, um, uh, because you and I are Latino, or somebody of African descent can be Latino, and so it's it's it's, it's kind yeah. of a broad brush. Yeah. But in any case, it was made, and w- what has since emerged in, in the past several years. And by the way, I want to credit uh, the man who's been a warrior on this topic, which is actually not me, uh, but it's been our friend Mike Gonzalez at yeah. the Heritage Foundation, who has done amazing work uh, exposing what this Latino museum museum has been up to. And uh, you can see kind of the preview exhibit right now at the. National National Museum of American History, also on the mall uh, in Washington, D.C. And uh, it's, it's, I believe it's the Molina Family Gallery. You can go in, and it's basically their, their in-place exhibit pending the construction of the full museum, which now you know, may, may not actually happen after yesterday's right. vote. Uh, it is a profoundly offensive um, uh, work. Uh, I don't know any other way to put it. Uh, you know, if you wanted to 
um, uh, insult the majority of Americans of Hispanic descent, whether you know Spanish, European, indigenous, or anything like that, you would probably put together a left-wing, strange, progressive uh, exhibit like what they have on the Smithsonian right now. Uh, it is an exhibit that um, effectively argues that uh, we, you, me, our fathers, everyone else, uh, uh, your mother in your case, I'm sorry, uh, but we're the losers of history. We're the uh, victims. We're the victims. Right? We're the, you know, we're the ones who, who got stepped on. And, and, you know, and there's a way to address historical injustice, which, you know, especially in Texas, there was plenty of it, right. um, uh, and to do it squarely without uh, degrading uh, an entire class of individuals, this historical cohort, into this uh, past and almost servile recipient of injustice and blows, uh, because that's contrary to reality. It's contrary to certainly, I'll speak from you know, a Mexican-American perspective, that's not who the Mexicans uh, were. It's not who the settlers of Nuevo Santander, Nuevo Leon, uh, the original settlers of Texas, the Canary Islanders who came to San Antonio, any of that. That's not who they were. Uh, and, and so to reduce them to that, which is absolutely what this museum does, is uh, essentially to make a case for the existence of another historically oppressed class in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so ignoring the fact that throughout history, uh, even at you know the nadir of, of, of treatment of, of Mexican-Americans, in particular in Texas, this was nevertheless a place where in aggregate people came to rather than fled from. You know, There's always this revealed preference. Um, you would never know it in the exhibits that they have uh, at this at this burgeoning Latino museum. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one thing to it too that really exposes the politics. Uh, uh, the use of language and rhetoric at the at the Latino Museum, they use the phrase Latino. For those of you who you know aren't familiar with with this particular uh, conversation that's been underway for uh, I don't know 50 years at this a point. A long time, yeah. A long time, but 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 it's a modern manufactured conversation. I want to be really clear. If you, if you rewind to say about 1965, it was very clear what you called people from of Mexican descent, Mexican Americans, Dominican Americans, Puerto Rican Americans, you know, or, or Puerto Ricans, period, uh, and so on. And so and so there was always this national origin consciousness. Yeah. Not that there wasn't a recognized similarity. Of course, you know uh, this the. the the intellectual class had this idea that there was this there was kind of this pan-regional identity, but at the same time, um, there was also an understanding that it was profoundly different among people. Come the modern era of identity politics, late 1960s, going into the 1970s, uh, there is this idea that everybody is Hispanic, which mm-hmm. sort of makes sense. Uh, then there's an effort to brand people as Chicanos, which is ridiculous. There, there, there is no such thing as a Chicano. I just want to just want to be really clear about. There's, there's, there's some left intellectual in San Antonio right now who's setting fire to our podcast. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, and then uh, the Los Angeles Times, in particular, with its uh, you know its style guide in the 1970s, actually started to promulgate the idea that we're all Latinos. You know, Latino this, Latino that. Mm-hmm. The, the irony of that is that is that the the kind of the demonym. Latino originated in French political thought, uh, sort of as an excuse for France to conquer Mexico in the 1860s. So there's layers upon layers of, of kind of ignorance and irony. Uh, attached to this, uh, but they've decided that Latino is it. Even though you know, you look at like Pew Hispanic polling, and it's a minority. It's sub twenty percent of people who call themselves Latino on every any given day. Um, there's many more who identify as Hispanic. There's even more who identify themselves according to uh, national origin. And so that's something right. that's very, very telling. Anybody who says that they're Latino, uh, I know that one of two things is almost probably true about them. They're either uh, progressive leftists or they're from mm-hmm. California. Latinx. Latin. Well, so then. <laughs> The museum does this too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, it ignores, you know, because Spanish actually does have a system. Spanish language, a great language, majesty, dignity, everything you could ask, mm-hmm. uh, has a system. You know, it, it is it's a gendered language. Uh, English is too, to a lesser extent, but you know, Spanish, like all Romance languages, is very gendered. Very. And then, when, and then when you want to use uh, uh, the the gender neutral, it's 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 os, it's all it's os, it's os, and so People you know, almost can't. You, you almost can't, right? Yeah. It's 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 Tejanos. Even Latin. objects are gendered. Except them, yeah. yeah. So there's no way you can get around it. Yeah. So the museum does not go as far as some of these folks, which is replacing the O and A with an E, and so you know amigues, things like okay. that, which is which sounds right, or with an X, which is even more. Nobody knows how to say that. Uh, but what it does do is, in its presentation, uh, it will for for plurals for you know multi you know for both sexes, uh, which there's only two, uh, you know for both sexes, it, it, they've actually got displays that say many Tejanos y Tejanos. Or they'll say Latina slash or, and it's stuff Aww. like that, which is, uh, and we have to be clear, is rooted in English speaking, Anglo progressivism that has no organic roots in Hispanic culture, certainly not Mexican American culture, uh, that that this museum is attempting to overlay 
on uh, you know, Latino, Hispanic, whatever, yeah. Mexican-American identity in the United States. So our friend Mike Gonzalez at Heritage has been a warrior on this. He, uh, I was very privileged to collaborate with him and Alfonso Aguilar awesome. months and months ago yeah. on a column that went in the Hill uh, on it. We'll put it, we'll put it in links uh, yeah, uh, here uh, so, so people can read it. Um, uh, the great news is that a, a congressman whom in candor, he's from Florida, so I don't, yeah, I don't pay that much attention to non-Texas congressmen, but I got to tell you, Mario Diaz-Balart from mm-hmm. South Florida is a warrior, and he, he read, it was interesting, uh, he read the column, and his initial thought, as relayed to me, was that the column was exaggerating. So he went and looked at the exhibit at the himself, museum. and his feedback to us was that it was even worse than we said. Wow. And so yesterday in House Appropriations, yeah. he led the fight along with other Hispanic Republicans and the Republican majority to defund the National Museum of the American Latino. Okay. Uh, and so I don't think it's the last word. Nothing's ever the last word in Washington, D.C. Uh, but, uh, but, but that fight was won. It is a well-deserved fate, and my hope, uh, although I'm obviously all for the recognition of the contributions of Mexican-Americans, Bolivian-Americans, anybody else to American history, part of the story, right? At the same time, it's better to zero out the funds, which they did, than to have it done in a way that is damaging Mm -hmm. to who we were, uh, who our forefathers were. Uh, and to the American future in candor. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it happened. And it is, awesome. it's an example of bringing cultural power to bear to affect real politics. That's amazing. Congratulations. So in essence, it was part of a museum. It was a, a preview, essentially. Correct. And they were going to create a bigger museum. It was going to be a whole new museum on the mold. defunded for now. It's, is there it, a point where we'll know more or... Well, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a budget, and so right. and so you know, see if it's in there. Uh, it's it's the unfortunate reality in Washington D.C. that nothing's yeah. ever totally dead, uh, yeah. but uh, th- this is this is getting this is getting to pretty dead. Yeah. So uh, well, and, we'll and, update our listeners if, if anything good. changes. Yeah. You know what? Let our achievements be the country that we make. Amen. So, <laughs> yes. well, all right. Thank you, Josh. I didn't know much about that. That's very fascinating. So, so thank you for sharing. Um, I think if you're okay with it, we'll shift to Mexico and talk sure. a little bit about about the border because there's a lot to cover on that too. Um, but as you know, even when I was in Florida, the Texas border right now is like all over the news. There's all yes, these articles being written about the buoy, the buoys, it's these the buoy floating system, yeah. buoys um, on the Rio Grande. Yeah. And everybody's talking about it. And AMLO has been saying a lot about it lately. Actually, just this morning, he mentioned it in his Mañanera. And um, somebody asked him about this claim. I don't know where the claim is coming from, but somebody said that the border agents have been instructed to, have you seen this, to, to mm-hmm. push little kids and babies into the Rio Grande? Push them into the water, yeah. deny, them, deny them water if deny they're starving them water. In, in the desert. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do know where it comes from, but please go ahead. I'll, I well, can and he, shed and some light on this. This cannot be true, but he was asked about it, and he said that first part, even he said that first part cannot be true about the babies. Um, but then he said the second part might be true mm-hmm. because we all know that migrants have a history of being hunted and pursued and discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And so then he said, which he he just did this earlier this week, but then he began attacking again conservatives. He attacked our governor, Governor Abbott, yeah. uh, saying that this is something that conservatives are doing basically as like propaganda or a photo opportunity so that they can get people that are anti-Mexican and anti-immigrant to get to vote for them. Right. So he essentially said that. And he was also asked like earlier this week, what is Mexico going to do about these policies and about the buoys on the Texas border? And he, you know, he cited a few passages from the Bible about how we should welcome, you know, we should welcome immigrants and and welcome foreigners. And then he also said he also this. OK, this was very interesting to me. Again, he said, don't vote for people like Governor Abbott. Don't vote for Republicans. And then the last part is he appeared to mock any border security effort. I don't know if you saw this. I did not see that part, no. But he said whether it's because the area where there's buoys is, is somewhat small. Eagle still. Pass. Yeah, it's just Eagle right. Pass. Yeah. And so he said whether it's 300 meters or two kilometers or five kilometers, maybe, they really need to hurry because there are 3,180 kilometers to cover. Mm-hmm. And um, Texas alone is how much? It must have around a thousand kilometers, if not more. So when will the governor finish up putting buoys in the whole Rio Grande? And what will he do with the areas where there is no river? Right. So I just wanted to ask you what you thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, there, well, first of all, uh, there, there there really is no area where there is no river. I think there's a there's a cut uh, right at the bare edge on the western tip of mm-hmm. Texas, uh, outside of El Paso. But other than that, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Look, the um, uh, I guess we have to explain some of the context for it. So 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 this buoy system has gone up. It's designed to deter people in the water. It's on the Texas side of the river. From crossing to begin with, right? From crossing to begin with, uh, there have been reports that there have been. Um, uh, actual uh, dangerous obstacles. Uh, I guess uh, concertina wire, uh, in particular, which is which is nasty stuff. We had to uh, I've worked with that before, and and it's. Um, uh, are you familiar with it? It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of a coiled wire, and so yep. it's always under tension, and uh, uh, prefer to avoid it uh, if at all possible. But it's out there. So we have to separate out, you know, what we can verify is happening versus uh, what's been alleged to happen. Uh, essentially, about 48 hours ago, the Houston Chronicle, uh, which is sh- sort of the source of all this reporting on it, published a story um, uh, saying, and they didn't name who it was, and we didn't get to see the source documents or anything like that, but apparently there was a DPS trooper, this Department of Public Safety here in Texas, mm-hmm. who sent an email um, uh, discussing how they'd been ordered to deny aid to uh, migrants who were in distress, and so apparently... Uh, according, uh, apparently, they let somebody uh, not die of thirst, but like suffer from thirst in the desert. So deny aid, deny medical aid, push people in the river, and things like that. Um, now, the on-the-record response is like none of that's policy. Uh, and so, and so, to me, I mean, you, again, you have to separate out, you know, what's actually right. happening. Which, which, in humility, we should say, like, we don't know. There's a lot of good policy out there that's executed poorly. Anybody who's been in a law enforcement situation, a military situation, anything that's high pressure and high stress knows that this is to be the case. So there's really no question in my mind that. It is absolutely not the policy of the state of Texas to deny water to people in the desert. It is it is 100% not the policy uh, to to like push people into the river, like mm. to throw babies in the river and things like that. Which is which which is what a lot of the national press has been living onto. Right. Uh, in in candor, I don't believe it. Now, uh, do I believe that um, some of the migrants you know may have injured themselves on some of these barriers? It's entirely possible. Uh, uh, when I say migrants, you know, let's be clear who we're talking about. We're talking about trafficked individuals, people who have been pushed across. And so some right. of the folks, you know, the New York Times. Times had a story on it today in which they quoted a woman saying, uh, you know, well, they told us to go back, but we can't go back. Well, why can't you go back? This is what the New York Times reported and dive into. Why can't you go back? Like, you came yeah. here, why can't you go back yeah. across the river? The reason is, is because there's a trafficking cartel on the other side. And if they go back, then they are unable in many, many cases, mm. maybe in majority cases, to earn the money in the United States that the cartel is counting on for them to pay their debts for the trafficking that they racked up. And so that's why they can't go back, because there is a criminal cartel on the other side. Mm. And in a case like that, you know, when you have that kind of scenario where it is large-scale trafficking of people who are being forced to cross, no matter what the barriers are, uh, then you have to ask yourself, what is the most humane thing to do for these migrants? Uh, it actually is not to let them cross, it's to shut down the traffic. That's the most humane thing. If you shut down the traffic, then these individuals, they don't get trapped into debt slavery. They don't yeah. get they don't get you know pushed across, threatened, or trafficked in the way that they are. They don't get sexually assaulted and so on. All the things that we know happen to these folks. So, you know, my hope is that is that the press obviously press is gonna go after the state of Texas. Department of Justice is already talking about oh, yeah. uh, you know, going after Texas for it. The uh, the, the the nice lady who is the White House uh, spokesperson um, uh, you know, got out her thesaurus and, and uh, said, you know, many unkind things about the state of Texas and what the country means and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and so and so that that is all happening. But my hope and expectation, and I think this actually will happen, is that Governor Abbott here in Texas will uh, stay the course. And uh, I hope he follows AMLO's advice in one thing and that he expands the system to make it difficult to cross the river almost everywhere. Yeah, I hope so. That, that's something that Mark Morgan does a really good job, I think, of yes. expressing. He said this before. He actually he actually just said it this week. Um, but he talks about how the most humane thing that you could do if you care about migrants is close the border because that is what's pushing all of these people. It's giving people hope that they're going to come to the U.S. And really what you're doing is you're pushing them into the grasp of the cartels. That's right. Where they're dying, they are being abused, they're being raped. Like, it's terrible what's happening. And so if you actually care about migrants, you should care about what they're going through to come here. And they're being trafficked. Um, That's right. It's, it's the, what's happening is terrible. So. And the trafficking doesn't stop when they cross the river. I no. think I think that you know that that's kind of one one concept that uh, that seems to be held by a lot of a lot of our friends, kind of on the center left, is that well they make it to the United States and then what happens? So next you know, step you know there's like question marks at step two and then step yeah. three is that they're productive American citizens, uh, if they are citizens. That's it. But but what 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 gets missed is that. 
that once you get to the U.S., and it's very common, I've talked to the individuals who have uh, literally just come out of the river, uh, Del Rio, about uh, maybe 18 months ago, and uh, it was a group of Venezuelans, uh, including one um, third country national who okay. wouldn't say where he's from. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but they, they all knew exactly where they were going. They had they had places to go, and you know, some were going to Portland, Oregon, and some were going to Dallas. Uh, but they had, they had roles lined up, and the reason that they did was because the trafficking network actually is end-to-end. -end. And so they would end up working at the places that they were slotted to work so they could pay the debt, mm -hmm. you know, I'll put debt in quotes, yeah. that they'd accumulated to the cartel. And so that, that network goes all the way through. And we, we have to think about when we stop trafficking at the border, we're not stopping it at an endpoint. We're stopping it at a midpoint. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that to me is such a crucial point to make. Yeah. And the cartels will never not collect their debt. Ever. Oh, or, so, or make an example of those who cannot pay. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But it's just always a very interesting dynamic when we see this. Like, you know, even even another thing that AMLO said this week is he was talking about he his beef right now on immigration is just with Republicans. Um, but he was thanking states like the state of California and mm. he was thanking President Biden because he was saying there was a point where migrants were persecuted and where migrants weren't treated well, but thank you to, to the work. He actually also named uh, President Trump, but he said thank you to President Trump and President Biden and states that have welcomed them like California. That's not really happening anymore. But again, like right. not not recognizing the blame for cartels and the terrible things that that migrants are going through. Of course, he would never do that. There's sort of this quasi-religious, um, uh, almost like civic cult of the migrant, uh, uh, and it's always existed in Mexico, but it really has has gotten amped up uh, under under AMLO. Um, I think we might have talked about this in one of the other podcasts. You know, when it, when you go to the Mexico City airport, they've got these giant electronic billboards out there yes. at, at, at the gates. Yep. Did we talk about that already? We did. We yeah, did. Semar's. It was an earlier podcast. Though. Yeah, yeah. No, no estás en México, pero México uh, está en tu corazón. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so Mexico's still in your heart, and where you know you're yeah. still in ours, uh, even when you're gone. And, and it's it's a very strange. It's especially weird to see it boarding a flight to Austin, Texas. Yeah. Um, uh, which is which is not one of the not one of the major epicenters, but um, yeah, it's it, it's there, and Amlo is uh, is 100% captive to it. Yeah, and since we're on that topic, I wanted to ask you about sure. an article that I sent you a couple of days ago. It's an op-ed, mm -hmm. and we were just talking about it, and I thought it would be interesting for us to unpack it for our followers. But it's basically about how any proposal for the U.S. to use military force against the criminal networks in Mexico is very irresponsible, mm -hmm. uh, damaging to our relationships with them, and it would be a, a failure to learn from the past, such as Operation Condor. Yes. And um, Wait, I Operation just, Condor? Did you say that? Yeah, it's, it's on here. Condor? Let me show it to you. Okay. That's but, amazing. But basically, I just wanted Operation to get... Condor was a was a transnational effort to... Um, uh, it was part of the the, the, the Guerra Sucio, wasn't it, to uh, kill leftists? And, and surely he couldn't have meant that. Well, he was talking about like the, that would the be poppy extraordinary. cultivations. Oh, okay, yes. Oh, That's he's talking he about talking the 1980s um, yeah. poppy eradication in. Uh, about. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that was a uh, that was Operation Condor though. Because yes. th there's a different condor in a South American context. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Melissa. <laughs> Go ahead. No, can, no, I can I see it? I do want to show it to you. Yeah, okay. I can't find where it is right now. Fascinating. Thank you, listeners, for for sitting through it with us. Do you do you mind if I look at the text though, yes, just real quick? Yes, please do. Yeah, yeah, because because he he had some interesting things to say. Go ahead, finish well, your question, and I'll... okay. So I'll, I'll I'll read something that I thought was interesting. But he basically said that instead of ruining our relationship with them, we should be focusing on new ways that we can help Mexico with our efforts, mm -hmm. and um, that U.S. political leaders can and should be exploring how to improve bilateral cooperation with Mexico, as well as multilateral efforts, including with China. Okay, so China. So, so, so I've, I've found here, thank you for, for letting me Google it, my, my confusion was that there's two Operation Condors. Uh, yeah. I was familiar with this with this very nefarious Operation Condor that, uh, that apparently, you know, thank you to the internet for uh, being the source of all knowledge. There was a 1970s era um, uh, effort to murder left-wingers, uh, basically, oh. among like the military governments in Uruguay and Argentina and the Chileans and the Brazilians. They would all oh. cooperate with it and throw people from helicopters. Very so, different. Hence my confusion. Yeah. Uh, apparently, there was another Operation Condor in the 1970s that was, um, uh, the, yeah, I guess you're, it's the only South American bird they can think of, right? <laughs> uh, and so it's uh, the Nixon administration's cooperation with the Mexicans to eradicate the poppy crop in, I remember because this Mexico. is the first episode of Narcos. 
It is. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. it's the first uh, of Narcos Mexico, right, where they yeah. come in and like burn the fields and things like that. Okay, so 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 this article uh, which which you sent me, which is an amazing uh, piece, it's from it's from Crisis Group, which is actually a very good organization. Falco yeah. Ernst, one of the best He's awesome. analysts out there yeah. uh, who we've met in Mexico City, works with Crisis Group. And uh, I, I always appreciate uh, individuals in the policy space who have strong opinions and don't mind interacting and engaging with people with strong opinions different from theirs. And so you know, Falco is, to me, is a, a real model of intellectual um, rigor and honesty, and I like that, even though even though we each think the other is wrong on a, on a <laughs> few key points. Um, but uh, th- this is by, um, uh, I apologize if I'm mis- mispronouncing his name, Brian Finnecane. Uh, this uh, this piece it's called Dangerous Words: The Risky Rhetoric of the U.S. War on Mexican Cartels, and and it, it was good. You know, when you sent it to me, I, I was glad you sent it to me because because I actually agreed with a lot of its analysis. I did not agree with with the conclusion, but it talked about um, uh, you know what it would mean if we were to do things like, for example, um, uh, declare Mexican cartels, <laughs> excuse me, to be a foreign terror uh, organization. Uh, could I read a passage? Do yeah, you mind from it? Yeah, please do. Absolutely. So he writes about things like this. Although by no stretch would an FTO, foreign terror organization, uh, although by no stretch would an FTO designation authorize the use of military force, it could be read as a signal that military engagement is in the offing. Uh, And he's right about that, uh, actually, which is which is one of the reasons that we support it. Uh, You know, I think we've said very clearly before here on this podcast that uh, you know our first choice is not to militarize the war on the cartels. To I mean, it's militarized in Mexico already, but uh, but to engage the U.S. military in it. But but we think it needs to be on the table, right? It needs to be something that there needs to be a signal and an understanding that ultimately the United States will stop at nothing to protect American citizens and communities. And so, so I agree with him on that. He's got a lot of really good text. Where I think, where I think he um, uh, sort of exemplifies, uh, and, and by the way, I, I don't know this author at all, so this is not a, a personal attack uh, at all, because again, I think he's got a lot of really solid analysis in here. So, so, so Brian Finnegan, uh, if you're watching, uh, I, I do this in a spirit of collegiality, uh, but uh, his, his, his close uh, basically says, the Mexican state will surely need to continue using force for some time in order to bring the wanton criminality in its territory to heal, and it needs to do so as part of a calibrated strategy. And so then he goes through, like what the elements of that strategy would be. Um, uh, proving those susceptible to joining criminal ranks with alternative pathways requires concerted efforts by Mexico and international partners. Mexico could use U.S. support for many of these efforts. So let's talk about that, because this is exactly the same thing that you and I heard yeah. uh, from U.S. government personnel in Mexico City. That, right. that, well, you know, the Mexicans, you know, we just got to have a partnership and concerted efforts and, you know, continue to aid them in that. The argument that we've been making and events, unfortunately, have borne us out uh, over the past year, really, on this, is that that partnership is effectively over because you ultimately cannot have, if you don't have a Mexican state that is interested in exercising full sovereignty over Mexico, if you don't have a Mexican state that is interested in quashing challenges to its authority, if you don't have a Mexican state that is interested in real partnership with the United States or anyone else, then how can you predicate policy based on any of those things? The United States, uh, and I think this is Crisis Group's preference, is to go, and again, Crisis Group, great organization, so right. not no disparagement of them, but, but this is their preference, is to continue on as if all those things are true. The argument that we're making, the argument that the coalition makes, uh, whose statement we released you know, five days back, four days back uh, at the time of this recording, uh, is that that partnership doesn't meaningfully exist, that desire on the part of the Mexican state doesn't meaningfully exist, and it's because that Mexican state is a partner with the cartels. Yeah. Uh, and realizing that gets us to actually most of this analysis, but with a completely different conclusion. And that's the difference yeah. that I think uh, the, the foundation and our partners, Heritage, AFPI, and elsewhere are bringing to the table. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a great sentiment. I wish we could all work together, but they don't want our help. It would be. It would be honestly. It would be a better world if we were wrong yeah. and they were right. But yeah. we have to. We have to face things as they are. I will say though. I think. I think that the Mexican government is very well aware of the threat that there's been a lot of talk about U.S. intervention. Because um, obviously, I think when this was brought up many years ago under Trump, people were shocked about like the U.S. ever having this conversation of. Uh, using military force against Mexico, but it's gained a lot of traction in the last couple of years to the point where AMLO himself has been talking a lot about it. Um, And we were just discussing that uh, what happened in Tlajemulco, 
last week Mulco, yeah, with the right, roadside yeah, bombs that right. killed those police officers yes, the and IED those clusters. civilians. Yeah. yeah, we were just talking about that. Someone asked him in a press conference. Someone asked AMLO. In fact, the the um, Jalisco governor Enrique Alfaro. Mm-hmm called it a terrorist attack. He mm-hmm. said it was a terrorist act to do that. And then someone asked AMLO, do you agree? Like, do you think that this is terrorism? And he was very quick to say no for a couple of reasons, um, because it didn't fit the definition of terrorism. And then the last thing he said in that moment was like, we don't need to be giving the Americans more reason to think that they can come here and interfere. Oh, yeah. The the, the actual quote um Let's not open the door for our neighboring ultra-conservatives who want to have excuses, pretexts for violating our sovereignty. Yeah. So neighboring ultra-conservatives. Yeah. Yeah, which which is getting close to a majority of Americans at this point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's pretty it's it's, it's pretty significant sentiment. Uh, yeah. No, that's that, that that's exactly right. I, I'm I'm not sure. You know, President Trump. Uh, the one big thing he did that got results to pressure the Mexican regime, the current Mexican regime, was the tariff threat. That he brought to bear that resulted in the MPP Remain in Mexico program, and 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 that that threat that was there got results. It was to me a model of how to deal with the Mexican state uh, in general, which is you have to be very clear and very you know very firm in your position that this is how it's going to be. Um, although there was discussion, we found out post facto mostly because Mark Esper wrote a, a memoir congratulating right. himself for this. Um, there was discussion internal to the Trump White House that that you should you should use the U.S. military to um, I think the context was take out drug labs or something like that, which is not really a refined concept of operation, but but uh, but but at least it's there. Um, uh, former SecDef uh, Esper talked about it, you know, bragged about the fact that he killed it, which you know, thanks thanks Secretary of Defense, uh, you uh, you killed a measure to defend Americans, um, uh, which shows, uh, sort of shows you how disconnected kind of the D.C. crowd is from the actual needs of American communities right now. Uh, but it was never a public conversation. What's different now, uh, at least on the right, is that there is a public conversation about it. Uh, and you and we've talked about this before. You've got you know you know Dan Crenshaw, Mike Waltz. Um, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, uh, Donald Trump, I, I believe, um, uh, you know, all talking about this idea that maybe the purpose of our national security establishment is actually to secure the nation. And part of that is securing the southern border. So uh, you know, here, here's, I, I think it has obviously caught AMLO's attention. What I don't think has happened is it hasn't sunk in mm-hmm. that it might get into the realm of the real. Uh, and I don't think AMLO believes it. Uh, I don't think uh, kind of the Mexican regime in general believes it right now. I think mm-hmm. it is a handy rhetorical talking point. Um, so the question for policymakers is: This is one reason an FTO designation would be so useful. Is what do you do to signal uh, that uh, that these dreams or nightmares, in the case uh, maybe, uh, could come true? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe part of the problem is there's not a lot of respect for the U.S. right now. No. There's not a lot of fear for the U.S. And part not of that might America. be the, the, the leadership, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. But since we're on the topic of intervention, sure. Uh, we never really got to cover this last week because we had so much to cover, but we kind of previewed it. And so I wanted to go into um, abroad. Oh, and how Marcello. he made his trip to Florida to protest yes. the, the the racist laws and policies of the United States against mm-hmm. migrants, um, and also just maybe start talking about the fact that he's running now, and we can ease into talking a little bit about the elections, which we've been wanting to do for a while. We have been wanting to do uh, that exactly that. Well, I mean, Marcelo Ebrard, who is is sort of this um, uh, I don't know how you describe him this uh, the, this walking picture of the uh, kind of the polanquito, um, you know, upper class. Yep. Uh, he's got his I don't know where he has his degrees from uh, Harvard or Yale or something like that. But uh, but he, he like he's that. an upper he's an upper class Mexican yeah. guy who you know went to the United States, I, I believe the United States for, for, for college and grad school, and then came back and became mayor of Mexico City after AMLO and then foreign minister, and now he's running for president. Yeah. And so Ebrard is trying to reinvent himself as like a, a man of the people, which is which is weirdly comic. Uh, every time, you know, every time you see, and, and you you know exactly the class of people I'm talking about. Yes. Um, these, the elite. Know, the elites, the elites. I'll, I'll never forget uh, having breakfast, having your breakfast in Polanco with, with uh, one of these folks. And... Um, uh, he asked me just kind of offhand, you know, what have you seen in Mexico City? And I said, I said, well, I actually have not seen. At that point, I hadn't seen as much as I wanted to. Um, but I've only seen kind of like the, the nice areas. I've seen, I've seen, uh, you know, Condesa and Polanco and you know, some of Roma Norte. Roma, and, yeah. and and he said, he said, he said, he said, the rest is trash. 
Mr. <laughs> Josh, don't see it. And, and, and I thought, well, that's, uh, that's quite a sentiment for, for, for your country and the people whom you, you know, presumably aspire to uh, uh, be among the elites for. But it's very, yeah. but it's not uncommon among uh, like kind of like this class of this class of wealthier um, sort of sort of elite Mexicans. And and, and Ebrard is, is is manifestly you know one of those individuals. I don't know that he actually thinks Mexico is trash. I, I don't want to impute that to him. Um, but he he wants to be president now. I think it's his turn. His major competitor is uh, Claudia Scheinbaum, uh, current mayor of of Mexico City, who's also this. Credential to leak. She's, she's a scientist of some sort. Yeah, I believe I forget what she's a scientist in. Too. Chemistry or botany or something like that. Anyway, a very a very smart woman, you know, on her own on her own terms. But at the same time, what's been interesting is that is that as she has campaigned uh, for the presidency, um, uh, she has she has gone to like these comic lengths of adopting AMLO's speech oh patterns gosh. and mannerisms, yeah. right? And so you you probably- She's trying to be his clone She's now. trying to be his clone. No longer a puppet, now a clone. I mean, I mean, she, she she's a lady named Claudia Scheinbaum who yeah. is from Mexico City. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, but now, you know, AMLO, AMLO's a peasant. I mean, he has the mannerisms of a peasant, I should say. I, I don't say that as disparagement, it's just a reality. He's an earthy guy. He's an earthy left populist. And um, Claudia's not. Uh, so it's very yeah. interesting to see these videos of her where she's suddenly just like getting down with the people. And it almost has this Kamala Harris vibe to yes. it of, of uh, you know, let me vibe with you. Um, but you have to see it to believe it. Because you told me about it before I saw the video myself. And oh, when I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Like the else, hand then. gestures, the, the Costeño accent. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna link it because I think everybody needs to okay. watch it. Please um, do to know what we're Please talking do. about. It's so different. Ahead. Yeah, no, it's definitely not her. And then she did the video where she goes to, um, she goes to one of the border markers. So, so on the U.S.-Mexico border, there's, there's these markers, and they actually, uh, the markers actually say typically that this is the border is established by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And uh, and she goes to the border marker and she, she kind of looks very sad and she points out and she says, I'm just here to remember the time that my country was ripped in half by the invaders from the north and we have to stop it from happening again. And it's just, wow. I mean, it's very different. It's just sort of this descent into. So 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 these are the two. These are two of the three major Morena candidates. Yeah. You know, both uh, neither of whom is is a person of the people. No, you've got the third Adán uh, Augusto López, uh, who's a secretary of the Gobernación. I think he's still in office, so he's not formally a candidate. Not yet, yet no. Yeah, but uh, but uh, you know, he's the one who um, uh, on the Guacamaya leaks was revealed to be uh, in league with many of the cartels. Yeah. So he's a person. What's interesting to me is is the the opposition. Have you followed this with the yes. with the opposition? So, yeah. so so why don't you talk about this? The... Well, th the funniest part to me is uh, she's indigenous. She's a senator. Xochitl um, Xochitl Galvez. Xochitl Xochitl Galvan. Xochitl Galvan. Galvan. Galvez. 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 Oh, it's Galvez. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Okay. That's all right. But um, she's she's um she's running. She's of more modest origins. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen these videos where she's talking about how when she was little, when she was growing up, she used to sell candy on the street um, to support her family. And it's just very interesting because, like you said, the people that are right now on AMLO's side are what a lot of us would consider the elite, even though they try to pretend they're not. I mean, they mm -hmm. say people of our origin. Well, that's questionable. Right. And here we have like a real indigenous person and I think that a lot of people on AMLO's side will be threatened because she might actually be able to relate to the people of Mexico. Yes. So it'll be interesting to see what would happen and it seems like AMLO is a little bit threatened. He's saying that he's not. He basically came out and said that she was a really bad move for his opposition and because that didn't go well, because that balloon did not float, uh, now he's seeing the opposition focus on the violence that's going on in Mexico because we talked about this last week, but it's the AMLO's time in office is shaping up to be the most violent uh, time in any president's history in, in modern history. Yes. And so now he's saying that they're focusing on violence. But it's funny because he acts like he's not threatened at all. But he also called in for an investigation into her company. Um, and yeah. it's, she responded to that and just said, like, machos like you can't handle like an, an intelligent woman. And right. so there's been all this back and forth. But I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens, because if it's if it's so cheat and and in Claudia, we could have like an, a woman's battle here. And I mean, especially in a country that has long been kind of known for like the machismo a, li a little bit in, yeah. in politics, that could be very unprecedented. 
It could be interesting, uh, although, although ha if it was Claudia, I would have to question whether machismo is over if it's a woman who wins by uh, basically transforming herself into a clone of the man who preceded her, yeah. right? It, it, but, but, but I agree with you. It's clear that AMLO is kind of freaked out uh, by yeah. uh, Galvez's uh, candidacy, that the conservatives, you know, whereas it looks like the Moranistas are going to put up um, people named Ebrard and Scheinbaum, and yeah. the conservatives have a, a working-class woman yeah. uh, who is uh, entirely indigenous, or mostly indigenous, anyway, she's heavily, heavily entirely, yeah. is entirely indigenous, uh, and that's their candidate, and she's actually a pretty good retail politicker. Um, uh, in, in full candor, I still think Morena's going to win just because they control everything uh, at this point. But yeah. uh, man, you know, I, I I hope it's a real election. I hope it's a real contest for for yeah. Mexico's sake. Uh, and we'll this. follow it closely. Um, one thing I found very fascinating when I was researching her is she is now running with a conservative party. But it, it appears that she's socially very liberal. Have you looked into this? Uh, she's a panista, right? She's uh... she's uh, you know she defends like LGBTQ. Um, she defends abortion, and I I've just been thinking. That's interesting. Yeah, so I mean, she even has defended the president's like social welfare programs, which is very interesting. But it just I was thinking I was thinking about this a lot on the flight on the way here. Mm -hmm. How that ideology, like these these ideologies that we're seeing in Mexico are so different than anything that we would see here. And I think we talked about this in an episode, how AMLO is very much a leftist, and he's obviously he's a socialist. We've talked about this. Yes. But he is socially not progressive at all. He's, he's very conservative. Pro-life. Yes, he's yes. denounced like the trans movement. He he doesn't he he thinks women should be in the household, like all of these things. Has he said that? I didn't know that. He, yeah. So he right. said that feminism is the biggest threat to institutions. Did he really? Which the the, the huh. institution that is the most important in Mexico is the family. Okay. So he thinks that women being feminist and not having babies is the biggest threat. So he's he said things like that, which obviously I don't think that feminists would love, but but it's interesting because we have this leftist, this socialist that's very very socially conservative. Mm -hmm devout Catholic, all of it. And now we have this person running for the conservative movement who's socially very liberal. So I was just thinking that's so different than anything we would we had have, have ever seen here in the US. It's a very different mix. And I, I think I think one of the things it highlights is the extent to which um, uh, politics, this isn't just Mexico, but this is across Latin America, as you as you know well, uh, are, 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 are personalized. I mean, they're, they're personal mm -hmm. vehicles. Uh, and so it's about, it's about the person. Um, uh, it was uh, uh, Jorge Castaneda, I think, who made the point. Uh, it could be somebody else. I think it was him who made the point that you, you just have to look at the names of political movements in the English-speaking world versus yeah. uh, the Mexican world, was specifically what he was saying. So in the English-speaking world, it's all about ideas. It's conservatives, it's liberals, it's progressives, and so on. And in, in Mexico, it's all about the man, Zapatistas, Carrancistas, Viistas, and so on. And and so, you know, you know, Amlistas, you know, you see those as well, and uh, uh, th this this to be goes uh, goes right in it. There isn't quite the same basket of ideological litmus tests uh, that that you would find, and so you can get the conservative candidate, who I suppose will be the conservative opposition in the general election coming up, um, who is uh, everything you said. I didn't I didn't know that she was, but uh, it's not surprising, I guess. You know, pro abortion, pro LGBT, uh, and so on. And then meanwhile, you have Amlo. Who is a leftist autocrat? I mean, we should be clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, but you're right; the feminists hate him, yeah. hate him. I, I remember being in Mexico City um, after one of their big marches and rallies, and the whole kind of the approaches to uh, the Socolo along um, Parque Alameda were just you know scrawled with like you know, feminist graffiti and things like mm -hmm. that. And so it's 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 just it's, it's a different it's a different uh, yeah. basket of basket of goods than you'd yeah. have in the United States. We'll have yeah. to follow it closely and see what happens. But we will. I think that being said, we're almost out of time. Is there any last closing thoughts? No, but uh, welcome back. It's good to have you back. And thank you. Uh, thanks yeah. as always for doing an episode. All right. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.